CMG Podcast, Change, Maintain, Grow. I'm Keith Marcima. This is my brother, Ben Shea, episode 10. My man, we're back on. Good morning, good afternoon. How are you, brother? Yeah, good, man, good. Keen to, um, to jump back on and have a chat. Just had a, before we kind of get into this week's app, had a message through or a, a little update from our man, Dan Brockman. We had him on a couple of episodes ago. And he's doing the 50 marathons in 50 days while he's still working. And I've had a fair few people ask about him, what, like what he's up to, where he's up to, how's he going. Um, so if you haven't listened to that episode, go back and listen to it because he's an absolutely inspirational guy. But he sent me a bit of an update on, on what he's doing. So he said at the moment his body's holding up great. He's had a massive load uh, running-wise in the last two weeks, 13 half marathons in 14 days. So that's about 280 Ks in the last two weeks and the only kind of soreness he's got out of it is semi-tight calves which loosen up once he starts running he's not going to do any more k's than that otherwise he said he's running 50 marathons in 50 days it'd be pretty much like doing 70 marathons in 70 days so you know the kind of half marathons as far as he's going but his body's liking all the extra food it's getting he's got heaps of energy he spoke to some ultra athlete nutritionist and um, got a good rundown on what to eat pre and during and post his runs. Um, he's been implementing all that. He feels great. Surprising how little soreness he's got. He's had a physio jump on board to look after him before and, and during his runs for free. Uh, and he's had some other sponsors jump on with some kit. I think it's Lululemon. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but that Lululemon. So my partner shield out from the background. Um, this free kit there. New Zest Nutrition for protein and greens and um, to get that in quick when he's eating and cultivate recovery for all his saunas, ice bars and that on weekends. So his work's going good. He's hasn't really changed his plan. He's going to keep at the 50 marathons, 50 days, continue to work eight hours a day as a Sparky. So yeah, jump on, follow his journey at Ned Brockman, donate to his cause. He's raising money for the homeless, but yeah, it was good of him to give us a little update. We'll keep up, we'll keep uh, up to date with him as we go. And he's starting his first marathon, I think on the 31st of, of August. And he's already raised over four grand with the target of 50 grand. So a grand for every marathon he's running. So yeah, a little update from our man, Ned. Uh, we had Charlie Gubb on last week. That episode went down pretty good. I think it surprised a lot of people how what direction he went in. I had a yeah, couple. definitely, definitely a different direction than um, a lot of people used to. It was a good insight to kind of see that side of of Charlie as well. So yeah, definitely a good listen for those that haven't uh, jumped on and have, have a listen go over and check that out. Yeah, he's usually a very happy-go-lucky, upbeat, jovial guy. And then he's he's went pretty deep. And I've known him for 10 years, and that's probably the deepest he's gone. In conversation with me, I actually had one message during the week. One of the guys that did know him said, I thought when I seen you, you were talking to Charlie Gubb, it would be an absolute fucking punish for an hour. But he said, I listened to it, and it went in a completely different direction than I thought. And I took I took so much out of it. So... You know, that's what we're about. That's what it was good for him to put his story out. Yeah, I had a had a couple of similar messages as well come through on my end and and said that um they really related to to what he said on the episode and and really um really felt what he was saying and, and been through similar things as well. So it was good to have someone on like that, like Charlie, um show a different of him and, and talk about things that um aren't really spoken of. 
100%. So this week's episode, we have Alyssa Azar coming along later. She's, uh, I'm just going to be interviewing her, same thing, while you're still getting your setup over there. But for anyone that doesn't know who Alyssa Azar is, obviously we're going to go into it further as we, as the episode goes on. But she's only 23 year, years old at the moment. She was the youngest Australian to climb Mount Everest. She climbed it at 19. And then I think she's the youngest woman ever to climb it from both sides. So she summited it twice at 19 and 21, once from the north side and once from the south side. She's done so many other things. She walked, uh, done the Kokoda Trail at eight years old. Like that's a, that's a grueling kind of test of endurance Kokoda track that everyone talks about and a lot of people aspire to do. And she's done that at eight years old. So super pumped to get her on and, and pick a brain, tap into a mindset, ask her some questions. And yeah, she's just like, you kind of, she's an extraordinary woman, but you say like extraordinary woman, you've got to be a bit wise with your words. She's an extraordinary person, like man or woman, what she's doing, very few people are doing. And she's only 23 so moving forward, I'm not sure what she's going to accomplish, but I know it's going to be huge. So yeah, it's going to be great to talk to her. And obviously she's going to be our first female guest on here on the Change, Maintain, Grow podcast. So we thought it would be a good opportunity as well to maybe dive a little bit more into the special females in our life, our partners, our fiancés. We're both engaged. So we thought we might tap, yeah. tap a little bit more maybe into our relationships with them and we're going to get them on and ask it <laughs> while we're not around. And um, we're going to take turns like you'll interview my partner, Mana, and I'll interview your partner, Yulia. And we're going to ask a few questions and see what they got to say, which will be interesting because one thing about our partners, and I'm sure you'll agree from your side, they probably won't pull any punches and they won't lie. They'll be pretty straight up. So yeah, I think it'll be interesting and I think it'll be a laugh and I, you know, I might get serious. It might not, but <laughs> I'm looking yeah, forward I had to, to it. had to kind of be on my best behavior the last uh, two days <laughs> when I found out that you're going to do this. I was like, uh, we'll find out soon if it's going to be a good idea or not. <laughs> yeah. I probably should have thought a bit more into that, but uh, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll tap into some, some raw emotions for sure. But I guess tell us a little bit about your relationship with your, I won't say missus, your partner engagement wise, like yeah. your little story, how long he's been together, where he's met, things like that. Yeah. So um, my partner's name is Yulia. She's Romanian. Um, I met her over in Romania, played a season over in Romania and met her there about uh, five, going on six years ago. Yeah. So we, we met, she was out in town. She was finishing work. I was out with my teammates out in town. And it was funny, actually, because there was an incident that happened in town. And so they seen, like, you know, a group of uh, rugby guys walking through in town. And they, the police pulled us over and said, oh, why would you guys do this? And the incident was someone had been um, knocked out in town. So I was, I, was, I was with a group of, like, 15 guys on my team. And we all got locked up. <laughs> and... We, <laughs> We were locked up overnight. We got released. We were out there, um, outside the cop shop waiting for a cab home. No one could speak the language. And we seen these um, two girls finishing work, waiting for a taxi. And I kind of asked them, well, could you call a taxi for us? Because we don't speak Romanian. And Yeah, one thing led to another. And um, five, six years later, I'm, I'm still with the girl that helped me get home. 
from the police so, station. In hindsight, it was definitely worth you knocking that guy out so you couldn't meet her. But, but that's the thing, it wasn't me. <laughs> was, it, was it one of the boys? Was it one of the boys or nah, nothing? Nothing. No, nah, yeah, we just walked down. We came outside from a bar, going to the next bar and, you know, in between walking to the next bar, we got pulled over and said, oh, why'd you guys do this and that? And because we couldn't speak the language, we just, you know, walked ourselves into the cop shop, sat in the cell there. Crazy how things happen. Things happen for a reason, my man. Yeah, well, that's the same. My partner, Mana, who um, I've been with now for, oh, I think, going on 11 years. September 2008, I'm pretty sure. Met through Bebo. If you know, you know. I was yeah. <laughs> out there getting them You're hearts. You're sending hearts. Getting them hearts every day. <laughs> And yeah, we've been together for, you know, a long time now. She was, I was with her in Sydney. She's moved up to Queensland with me and yeah, it's been a, it's been a journey for sure, but it's been good. So two kids together now, uh, Connor's five this year and Layla's turning three at the end of the year. So two beautiful kids. Very happy with that. You've also got a daughter. Yep. Got a, got a young daughter, two years old. So definitely one of the, probably the biggest highlight of my life thus far. Um, yeah, definitely proud of that. What would you kind of say? So six years, so that's probably delving back into your mid to early twenties. So yeah, obviously things have changed a bit since then. What would you say have kind of been the ups and downs and how have things changed, I guess, on your end and as a relationship as a whole, you know, especially having a child, it changes a lot of things. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like you said, met, um, I was back in my mid twenties, met her when I was 24, 25. Um, you know, and back then it was, a, I had a totally uh, different mindset. You know, I was, just, I was still a kid really, still kind of a kid now, but, um, you know, come a lot, lot further than where I was. Um, but yeah, back then, um, still a kid trying to figure out life how I am now. Um, probably know a bit more things now than I than I did back then when we first met. Um, you know, still in old habits, doing um, things that I was still doing back home, and you know, still running in circles. Really, um, like any relationship, had a lot of ups and downs. Um, probably having a lot more ups now than we did back then. Still learning, still figuring out life together. Really, what about you, my man? Yeah, I'd say obviously, so we've been together since I was essentially 19, I guess. So things have definitely, yeah. lots of ups and downs, lots of, um, I guess lots, of, yeah, lots of, you know, natural things as you, fights and, and whatnot. So I don't think we've ever really come close to, I guess, yeah, probably come close to breaking up a few times, but we stuck together. And then, um, yeah, obviously when, we had our first child, things began to change. Like, I guess at the start, I don't know, there's like a thing in, I don't know, society or you hang around the boys, like your missus is almost like a thing. It's a competition to who's got the worst missus. Like, oh, fuck, yeah, my yeah. missus is terrible. Then you be with the boys and like, oh, his missus on the phone, like getting under the pump with texts and whatnot. And it's just like a thing where, um, yeah, your missus is just a, a part of your life that you're essentially 
you know, it's just there for convenience, I guess. But you yeah, know, we've gone through that. And I guess the further that we've gone into relationships and, and having kids and that, and by no means is our relationship perfect yet or whatnot. We sort of have plenty of ups and downs. But as you said, the further it goes on, there's a lot more ups. And I think now, especially probably the last two, three years, our relationships developed a lot more where she's probably, she's become my best friend as well. Like I bounce everything off her. I've got to, I'll run everything by her and she gives me great feedback and everything. And she's, she's brutally honest. So I know generally when she, when she tells me something, it's the truth, but yeah, it's definitely gone from that. Just, Oh, she's my missus partner relationship to kind of a, it's developed into like a best friend thing, which is, you know, great. And you're obviously when you have kids, you've got to, you've got to be mindful how, how you treat people and that's you know someone's mother that's your kid's mother the the person yeah. that you treasure most in the world but your child that's their mother you've got to it really puts things in perspective to you and i think you know having kids you see things through a different eye but i think over that whatever it is 11 12 year period has definitely just developed from a relationship of you know not convenience but you know partner you've got to misses into really I, I want to hang around her now. I'm taking her to do things with her. I took her to boxing with me this morning. Whereas before two, three years ago, I wouldn't have done that. There were, I just had, I just had this thing in my head where there was a time for your missus. There was a time for the boys and that's, that was it. Now I'm really, she, she takes priority over the boys now, hundred percent hands down all the time. Whereas, you know, before, which is, you know, it's, it's bad to say, but Oh, the boys would be priority over her. Yeah. Yeah, definitely agree. With um, yeah, the things you've said there, um, yeah, yeah, she's definitely become my best friend. And after having our first child, um, yeah, definitely see her um, differently now, and seeing the growth in her, and and that's made me grow as well. Kind of forced me to change and and be a better man and be better for my child and for her as well. So yeah, definitely grateful for her. And yeah, still learning, still learning. Well, in saying that, being better, what do you think you could improve on if you had to say day to day? Or what's yeah. up, have you made any conscious decisions in the last couple of years, something to improve the relationship? Or, or what do you think you could be better at? I could probably be better in all aspects of my relationship, you know, and being a father, being a partner. Um, yeah, in all parts. Um, over the last year or so, i tried to... Um, manage my time a bit more better you know like you have always time for the boys and if I have any extra time and then you know it'll be for her and now I'm trying to change my priorities and, and get that in order and you know give her the time that she deserves and you know put a lot more effort um, into my relationship and into her and yeah that's I think one big thing that I could really improve is my time management and and doing things um, that need to be done really yeah probably same like I think I probably take her for granted. She's such a great mother and she's so good around the house. I probably do take how good she is for granted. Like as in she'll clean the house, she'll make the beds and I can be messy. Like I, there's when I, cause we go away for footy, we've got five away trips where we've got to fly and I'll get back and the house is immaculate. And it's probably, it's been like that for the two, three days I've been away with two kids. It's immaculate. And I don't know what it is. It's just something about me. I'll be in the house for 45 minutes and the shit everywhere. It's not just for me. It's like the kids, something clicking them. And then, but um, yeah, I, I definitely, th I probably think I take it for granted a little bit, but on the other hand, I am very grateful because I know how 
good of a mother she is, how good of a provider she is, how good of a protector she is and how good she is, you know, to me. She's always cooking for me, looking after me. And she's been so supportive. She's always so supportive of me. But since lately, I've really been delving into these physical challenges, like with the Cronin challenge running around the clock for 48 hours and uh, marathons. And I'm charging up for this seven marathons in seven days. All these things are definitely not possible without her support. You know what I mean? If I was if I was just doing that by myself, because there's so much away from it. when I was running the the Cronin Challenge, the seven k's every four hours for 48 hours. Like you're running in the dark, you've got to have a shower, you've got to change your clothes. So that's 12 change of clothes. You, someone's got to do your washing. You, the last thing you need to do after you do a 30 minute to an hour run is come inside at 1 a.m. and cook food. Like she was cooking my food, she was massaging my feet. Like so much going into it, and she's been so supportive of everything there. Like yeah. so positive. Uh, you know, egging me on, giving me support, you know, getting me through that. So yeah, as I said, I, but that's probably come through our relationship change and the, I guess, becoming that best friend as, as we move along. And I think that's only going to get stronger moving forward. But I remember, cause we always talk about a man, Jocko, when I read his book, extreme ownership a couple of years back, and that's just about taking ownership of every aspect of your life. And if something's going wrong in your life, it's not about looking for someone to blame. It's about finding a way that you can help that situation or fix that situation, like taking ownership for that, for that situation, even though if it's not directly yours and then finding a way to resolve it. And I think a lot of times with relationships, if guys are in a bad relationship, they just say, you know, my missus is a bitch. That's it. It's her fault. She's a bitch. But then you've got to look into it. why is she being a bitch? Like you're not giving her time. You're treating her like dirt. You're not helping her out. You're not giving her any presence. Like what is it? You've got to kind of delve into that, uh, her psyche a little bit and work out, you know, what are you actually doing? You're probably being a dick, which is, you know, making her be a bitch. So I remember, I think it was last year or the year before last year, one of my news resolutions was once a week, just buy her something that I wouldn't usually buy. Cause like I would get into a selfish habit. If I was driving, if I was coming home from somewhere, I'd just buy a coffee for myself and I wouldn't buy her a coffee. Just something as simple as that. Like might've been buy flowers, buy some chocolate, grab her something at the shops that I wouldn't usually buy, bring her home a coffee, just be conscious of it and do that at least once a week. And I'd write that down like weekly in yeah. my, in my journal, like one thing I'd done that week. And I think that just, that kind of got into my psyche and it's fired on a lot more. I'm a lot more conscious of her. And then obviously when I'm making her feel better, she feels better. That comes back to me. It's just a better vibe around the house, but I think you can get locked into your own, just, you know, looking after yourself, being that self, being selfish, just taking, taking them for granted. There's someone that's always there. You don't have to do anything to fix the problem. But, you know, as like Glenn Azor says, that you control the energy. You've got to change things up sometimes. And that, that was probably a big thing, I think, just being conscious of her and, you know, giving a little bit back to her and making a conscious effort. What type of mother is Yulia, if you had to describe it? What type of mother? Uh, you know, I, I think about this question a lot and, you know, Yulia, the mother she is to, to our daughter, she's probably the best mother that I could ask for for, for my daughter. You know, she's, um, if we think about last episode, we spoke about being selfish and selfishness. She's like the to- total opposite. You know, she's selfless. She's always giving her time and her effort and all her energy into, into our daughter. And, 
not any even to me with the little energy she has left over. She gives that to me, and at the end of the day, she's exhausted. Did anything for herself. She hasn't, um, you know, sat down, had, had a cup of tea or anything. Everything she does is is for our daughter, and whatever's left over is for me. So, she's a great mother. You know, she's all the all the best um, attributes for my mother. I see that in in Yulia and all the good things and positive things she she takes from from her mother. She she uses for our daughter. You know, so she's great, man. She's she's a big help, and my daughter's definitely lucky to to have Yulia as, as a mum. Percent, yeah, Mana. She's of, I, my opinion, she's the best mother, mother ever. She's, she's very protective. She's very fierce. She's, she's pretty. Um, I guess you could say forceful. I wouldn't like to, I wouldn't like to fuck with with the kids in front of her. I think she could, yeah. uh, she could get pretty nasty. Um, but yeah, no, she's the best. She's so good with the kids. It's, uh, I don't know what it is. Just the way she looks after them and that motherly nature she's got. Yeah. It's awesome. Obviously. Yeah. They're pretty, pretty important to us. The girls, are you getting married or what? How, how long have you been engaged for? Oh, I think coming up two years now, almost two years. Fuck. You'll slip into the trap with me. I think I, I, <laughs> I got, I got engaged at Christmas, 2014, man. How long ago was that? We're still engaged. <laughs> Bro, what's marriage? I think, I think, I think your excuse is you're planning a really big wedding. So <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that wedding. <laughs> I'm taking the time to plan the smallest wedding possible because you of all people know like Tongans, bro, they don't mind a wedding. They don't mind a party. <laughs> yeah. And I'm not working at the moment. So I'm not, I de- that's definitely not in the cards at the moment. But uh, yeah, I definitely, that's definitely something I want to tick off, especially when you have kids. So everyone's got the same last name, you know, but to me, she's my wife. Yeah. Yeah. Hands down my wife, but it's just that little technicality of the last name that we're facing at the moment. Yeah, I'm the I'm the same as you, you know. Like she's she's my wife, she's you know my everything, my best friend. And the only reason I I, I want to have a wedding is because it's she deserves it, you know. It's um something that all girls want to do. So for me, I couldn't care less if we have a wedding or not, but it's something that I want to do for her, you know. All right, brother. Without further ado, let's bring the girls in. So we'll take it in turns. You interview Mana. I'll then come back and interview Yulia. We're gonna leave the room so they can kind of say what they want. We don't really know. There's no pressure on them. It's not like we're going to be eyeballing them, like saying, you know, yeah. pointing out and making sign language in the background. So I'll go get mana. <laughs> I'll jump out of the room and you can give me a yell. After she bags me. Sweet. She'll get these questions out so you can go have your nap. Let's do it. You've been smashing the training. Oh, yeah, it, it started from listening to you guys, actually. I think you guys were talking about um, what were you guys talking about? Having a, a system in place, and yeah. I know when we went back to to Ben's farm, he tried to get yeah. me to do all these things, and I just kept rejecting him. Like I was doing the training, but I wasn't really into it. Yeah. Um, and then when we got back, and I, I think I was listening to one of your episodes, and I don't know, it just just clicked. Something just clicked, and I just started doing little things like showers and then yeah now I'm just I can't not train in the morning I can't not have the cold showers so it's been really beneficial but it just rolls on it does it just rolls on like when you started with little things now it's just you know like you said you just need to do it you just have a feeling to to do things yeah it's it's been really good actually it's I feel amazing 
Yeah, good for you. Yeah. Good for you. All right. So, you ready? Um, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ready to expose Ben, yeah? Nah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's do this. Question one. Day to day, what is he like around the house? He's not too bad. He, he keeps to, he doesn't keep to himself. He's always doing something, but pet hate, he will check on what I'm doing. And if I'm not doing anything productive, he will say something about it, which drives me nuts. Um, but he's pretty good. He's always studying. He's always doing something. If he's not sitting at his computer, he's out in the, in the shed doing, you know, in the gym or he's running. So He's pretty busy all the time. So leading, yeah, leading to our next question, what is his worst habit? Uh, worst habit. Should I get a list out? <laughs> um, nah, there's this thing that he does. It's so annoying. He, <laughs> he picks at his eyebrow all the time. Really? Yeah, he does it like... With tweezers? <laughs> no, it, it looks like he's got tweezers, but it, it's with his fingers. But he doesn't just pick it. He'll pick it. And he'll put it to his mouth, even if he's got nothing in his in his hand. He will pick it, and it drives me absolutely nuts. That and the toilet seat. The toilet seat drives me crazy because he will leave it down every single time. I mean, leave it up. Um, yeah. Is that is that a bad habit he's had for a long time? Yeah, definitely. And the washing, the washing. He likes to put the washing in the machine, but yeah. won't hang it out. And if he does take it off the line, he will just dump it somewhere and he thinks it just magically goes back into the <laughs> so annoying. I think that's his worst. Yeah, that's it. Okay. Next question. What's something he couldn't live without? Does it have to be material, like like something materialistic, or it could be anything. It could be both. <sighs> Probably the kids. Yeah, I'd say the kids. I don't think you could live without the kids. He's obsessed with them. <laughs> okay. Any embarrassing stories, or any funny stories, or anything silly that he he's done? Oh, he does a lot of silly shit. Like <laughs> every time he goes for a run. He comes in and he's always wearing no shirt and he's like all yeah. sweaty <laughs> and he just comes in like with gun show and everything and he's like, fuck, you're lucky. <laughs> I'm like, you're so embarrassing. <laughs> like one day I'm going to video like record you so everyone can see how up yourself you are. So that's, that's something that's embarrassing. There was that video that you had of him. I think he was talking to me on the podcast where he had a hoodie but then he had no Pants oh, on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he does that often and I thought I'll get him this time. He he didn't think I was gonna put it on, but I did. That was that was funny. <laughs> that was funny. So the stuff that you know, since the podcast and, and the CMG page, the stuff that he talks about and promotes, does he live this day to day? Oh, hundred thousand percent. A thousand percent. And like Sometimes I think maybe people from the outside looking in, they probably think he doesn't. But yeah. me sitting here, I witness it all the time. He 100% follows through with everything that he puts out there. And that's what I love about him. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I agree as well. You know, even like when you said people from outside looking in, because, you know, like you, I've known Ben, the old Ben, you know, from 10 years ago and where he's today is a totally different person. So, oh, you know, it's only normal for people to, you know, you know, to look in and, you know, judge and, and whatnot. But, yeah. you know, it's, you know who Ben is and Ben knows who he is. So that's all that matters. That's really. it. That's it. So what, what is he like as a partner and what is he like as a father? Uh, very supportive. Like a lot of the things that I'm doing now, it wouldn't be, be like, he's helped me a lot. He encourages me to do like, you know, train, eat well, um, just to be a better person. So that's, yeah. that's what he's like as a partner. He's a great, he's a great dad. A lot of, what he puts out there to everyone, he also teaches the kids too, which I love. Because um, I'm I'm not very good at communicating stuff. So where he comes in and he does all that. So he's pretty yeah. good. Oh, that's awesome. So over, over the years of you guys being together, what are some of the changes you've seen in Ben? Just putting his time more into our relationship because he was always boys. It was always about the boys and then everything else came second. And now it's like totally different, which is really good. It's, it's helped our relationship like a lot. Um, Yeah. And the drinking, the drinking's, is I don't like, I know he does. He says he had like, doesn't drink anymore and I don't care if he does like you know next week or tomorrow or anything but it's been really good to see him not drinking because he's when he was drinking I was always not this like angry or anything it was just like I wanted him to use like because he would drink and then the next day it was he would be hungover and just not do anything for the rest of the day. And that was that time I wanted him to spend with the family. And um, so now it's, yeah, everything is family and then whatever else comes second, which is really good. Yeah. Yeah. I can definitely, you know, back what you just said, because, you know, I've known Ben, the old Ben and, you know, how he used to drink and, you know, Mm -hmm. I was right alongside him doing all (laughs) those things and, I've always, you know, was with him when I, when the phone would go off and that was you, you know, checking up on him and seeing how, you know, how is he going to get home and then see you come pick him up and, and all of that. So, you know, it's definitely been a big change and, you know, he's definitely lucky to have someone like you, you know, like, hey, you haven't beaten him up. I don't know. You know, it's a miracle. So. <laughs> oh, oh, no, no. Hands have gone. Yeah, nah. I've, <laughs> I've let the hands go a few times. But, um, yeah, no, it's been it's been really good really good with him so what what to you what is ben's best quality um probably doing things that other people um like the things that he's doing now a lot of people would like close friends too would judge him for it or say something negative and I love that he doesn't let that bother him. I love that he just yeah. follows through with what he wants to do and not let other people, other people's influence him into what he wants to do. 
I think that's what I like about him is that he does his own thing when he wants and yeah I think that's yeah I think that's I think that's a, a big quality and a great quality you know especially these days where a lot of people care about what others think you know and are scared yeah. to do what they want to do so I'm I'm the yeah, same I'm the same like yeah. I I worry about what other people like I say I'm because I'm a big personality I'm loud and shit and it and it looks like I don't care what other people think but when I do do things, I make sure like I do it so other people are not judging me. But whereas him, he just does it because that's what he wants to do. So yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, I'm the, I'm the same as you. I'm still learning not to care what others think. You know, because yeah. we're brought up in a society where we have to care. You know, keep up with the Joneses, and you know, oh, that's easy looking at me for this and that. And it's that you know, tongue and pride. Have, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And it's, yeah. it's a problem too in our culture. So oh, it's you know, massive. definitely something, yeah, we need to address it for sure. I think it's because our parents, when they, when you do something and they always say, oh, why can't you be like this person? Or why can't you be like yeah. that person? It's like, well, why yeah. don't you just like me for who I am? <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so Mana, to finish off, last question. Um, is there a message or any advice for Ben and you know where where he's at the moment in his journey and where he's heading. Do you have any advice for for Ben? Um, stay true to himself, I guess, and just keep doing what he's doing. Um, yeah, yeah. Don't go, don't go backwards. I know he. Some. I think that's his biggest fear is going back to what he was doing before, and like, I don't know. Just, just keep going. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. Yeah, especially for Ben on the path that he's on and yeah. the direction he's he's heading, you know, sky's the limit. He's doing Definitely. big things and you know, especially rubbing off around people around him, you know, like me, like you. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. Thanks for that, Mana. No worries. Yeah. Let's do this. Let's do this. <laughs> All right. I'm here with Keith's beautiful partner, Yulia, and I'm excited for this because this is the first time I've actually talked. We've only talked over message and I'm pretty sure what I picked up in messages is you're a bit of a character. So I think you might have some good answers for us. <laughs> questions. All right. Like it, this, like it, this guy's not here because <laughs> I, I can smell some, some fear yeah. coming from the room. <laughs> I think, yeah, let's do this. Let's I think, think he has been a bit worried. All right. Day to day, what is he like around the house? Like messy, tidy, boring, annoying. How is he around the house in general? It literally depends on the day. So sometimes he's, you know, messy and annoying. Sometimes he's tidy and annoying. But one thing's for sure, this guy's never boring because he always annoys me. I don't <laughs> get to get bored because I'm always annoyed with him. So, Beautiful. Yeah. Well, leading off the annoying, what would you say his worst habit is? Um, oh, yeah. The damn pot left in the sink to soak for up to months, years, decades. So yeah, I've heard I've heard he was a big but, fan of leaving the pot to soak. But he told me he changed. He said that was a part of his journey. That's what. Yeah, I gotta give him some props for that because um, yeah, he um, he's working off on procrastinating. So yeah, for let's say a month and some weeks, I haven't found any pots left to soak which is good so yeah oh that's good to hear um what's something that 
you don't think he could live without, like whether it's materialistic or something real, what do you think he couldn't get by without? Oh, his damn phone. I think he could marry that thing. If, if he could, he would marry that thing. Uh, and um, yeah, his daughter. Yeah. His twin. Definitely. That's a good one. Yeah. Um, any embarrassing stories from him? I think the, the, the way we met, this is one. And then <laughs> last week, this guy, we were walking. We were on a family walk. Everything was cool. And this guy saw a laptop shop. And it was closed. So he went to like look through the window and the window was so clear. This guy hit his head so hard. I thought the alarm would go off. Seriously. Like every time I pass by that damn shop, I laugh all by myself and people are staring at me. Like I look like, yeah. Yeah. He's big I think four- that was like the most recent. His big forehead straight into the, uh, <laughs> into the glass. Um. Bro, yeah. And he was like, Oh my God, I got to give props to the person that cleaned this window because <laughs> I, I didn't fucking see it. <laughs> what about just like in general, is there any silly, silly shit he does around the house? Like just on the daily that I know annoys you, but is kind of funny at the same time. Like any little quirks that he's got. He's the toilet is his like room. And we always fight over that. He's always there. He always spends time in the toilet. On his phone, I don't know he... what he does there. <laughs> oh, definitely, definitely. Like that's why I said, if he could, he would marry that thing, because he never takes me to the toilet. <laughs> he always takes his phone to the toilet. So, if if he was going to the toilet and he didn't have his phone, would he like panic and try and find his phone? Or if you said, "I oh, just leave your phone out here," would he like blow up? Bro, this guy, if he doesn't have any battery, he would wait <laughs> for his phone to charge, and then he would go toilet. It's that bad. <laughs> Uh, oh all right what about you know the stuff he promotes and talks about on cmg page or on his own page healthy lifestyle and stuff like that does he live that in normal life is there is there a, a disconnect between online life and normal life or is it pretty pretty similar what he's putting out okay is he living it okay well masima has to give me 50 euros for this one <laughs> Uh, no, jokes aside, he, he does what he preaches. And yeah, I really admire this about him. He's not full of bullshit. Yep. He does what he preaches. Yeah, definitely. I thought that would be the answer. He's pretty, uh, he's pretty straight up. He might have, you know, yeah. a few little things here and there, but he's definitely not a, definitely not a liar or anything like that. He's yeah, he does not a guy. Yeah. What's, what's he like as a, as a partner and a father? As a partner, he's loving and really, really supportive. Um, and as a father, <laughs> I like him more as a father than as a partner because he's my my baby. I'm, you know, but he's a great father. He's really, like, if Kalia could speak, she would tell you that he's her favorite. Yeah, even though I carried that baby for nine months and you done all the hard work. That's what I get. That's what I get. Yeah, I I did the hard work, and this guy gets all the attention, all the love. <laughs> yeah. So he was saying before that you have been together for six years. What kind of oh, yeah. over those six years? What changes have you seen in him? Has there been any changes over that six years? And kind of what what have they been? Has he got better yeah, or worse? A lot. A lot. No, it, he he has gotten better. I mean, both of us. Because we were like, <laughs> we used to drink a lot. We used to go out, enjoy our times, you know. 
live more of a platonic life. But um, yeah, ever since Kalia came into the picture, we just like chilled, we calmed down, we don't eat as bad as before. Bro, we used to eat out like junk food all day, every day. Like it was really bad. Yeah. But now he's more, we, we're chill and he's chill too, he's, it's, he's better. He has gotten better. And I, I give, I put this on Kalia. She, yeah. she changed him, she changed me too. Definitely. It's, we, it's, she, yeah, she made us more responsible. It's crazy when you have kids. It's like something in your brain flicks and you just see the world through different eyes. It's yeah. crazy. I think there is like yeah. a sci- scientific thing behind that, that there is different hormones and that release. But before, like for me, I remember if I go on a plane and hear a baby crying pre-kids, I'd be like, oh, can someone shut that baby up? Yeah. And now I go on a plane, I'm like, oh, that poor kid is your right. Or the parents must be so stressed that the baby's yeah, And you feel noise. like going and giving them help and that offering, yeah, to help them. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, they're special thing, kids. Um, what would you say Keith's best quality is? Oh, what there are actually two he's hardworking and he's consistent and what i admire about him the most is his consistency bro i wish i i had that it's like for me it's something very hard to acquire he's yeah that's what i admire about him the most consistency it's hard to be consistent is hard and he tries a lot of different things too. And he puts so much time. Oh yeah. He's, like, he's open to everything. He's open to everything. He's very talented. All right. To finish, to finish up, do you have any messages or advice for him for like where he is, where he's at the moment and like moving forward, if you could like give him a little message or any piece of advice, what would it be? Uh, to be honest, I see him so consistent. I think he's on the right path. And I always tell him, I'm so proud of him. And I'm sure his daughter <laughs> is proud of him too. And yeah, just bro, keep on doing what you're doing because you're doing a great job. You're, you're on the right path. That's awesome. Thank you so much for that. And it was awesome to talk to you for the first time. All right, we're back. We're back on after the girls. That was good. I can't wait to listen to Mana's one. And I'm sure you can't wait to listen to yours. Yeah. It was good to get the girls on, as we've said, like they're such an important part of our life. And we're going into Alyssa Aza, like a strong, powerful female doing amazing things, breaking down barriers. And I think it was good just to get the girls on too, to kind of pull the curtain back a bit on us because we can put out yeah. whatever we want to put out. But as we said before, like they don't lie. They don't really pull any punches. So it'll be interesting yeah. to see how they come out, my man. I forgot to say at the start, I was on the bro chat podcast last week we always talk about the boys glenn Jaden, yeah brody zaya absolute beast kind of our brother podcast they're our yeah our brothers and, and we kind of match up we're on a similar wavelength with standards and values so if you don't listen to the bro chat podcast jump over and listen to that as well i was on last week's episode and yeah we're um rolling on to this with interview with Alyssa razor mountaineer adventurer an all-around extraordinary human. Yep, absolute beast. Talk to you soon, brother. All right, my man. All right, here with Alyssa Razor. Thank you for coming on the CMG podcast. That's all right. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it because I know you do this stuff, well, professionally. You know, you go around, you talk, you give motivational speeches, you talk about 
what you've done. So really appreciate you taking the time to come on and you're the first female guest. So little all right. So that's pretty cool. Yeah. Yes. And obviously I've had a lot to do with your dad, Glenn over the last eight to nine months. And he's someone that I look up to and he refers to all his kids, but he obviously talks about you and your feats a lot. And I haven't really talked to you much, so I'm really <laughs> excited yeah, for Yeah, yeah, good to uh, chat sort of one-on-one, yeah. So I guess if I was giving a quick overview for the listeners and to set the scene, Liz Razor, 23 years old, 24 at the end of the year. Yes. Adventurer, mountaineer extraordinaire. <laughs> um, you kind of started your... You've always been an adventurous child, I guess, but you started hiking and bushwalking with your dad about the age five. Yeah, about the age of five, um, just locally where I grew up in Toowoomba. So he was in the army throughout the time that I was growing up and then started to work for a company on Kokoda because he had medic qualifications that they needed to take, you know, big corporate groups over to Kokoda for all their safety measures. And that was kind of my introduction to it. So I was around a lot of people who had crossed the Kokoda track um, and from all walks of life. So I knew it was hugely challenging. But I also knew that it was achievable um, because he taught people in business, um, school students, just all different ages. Um, And so it's something that I heard a lot of stories about. I became quite fascinated by Kokoda. But yeah, that was really my introduction to adventure is I was into a lot of sports. I was pretty hyperactive and he would go bushwalking on the weekends, um, sometimes himself. And then sometimes he'd take clients that he was training for Kokoda and so I would go and join for a few hours and just loved it so yeah got got hooked on it straight away. So Kokoda at eight and I think you were the youngest person to do it at that stage I think there might have been some younger people now but you're the youngest person to do it Um, and things rolled on from there you took up some you had some boxing and some fights in there and then yeah yep aspirations of Kilimanjaro then you went on to Mount Everest, you've summoned that twice. Yes. <laughs> youngest Australian and youngest female to su- summit from both the north and south side. That's right, yeah. And you've, <laughs> so, you've yeah, released, pretty a, hectic period. <laughs> released a book. Yes. Going <laughs> up your first so, so pretty fair to say you've always been adventurous. <laughs> yes, yeah, always been quite driven. Um, and I was very fortunate that my dad was very supportive of that, but he was also very careful to just get me to understand the reality behind it. And I learned some really good lessons about that starting with Kokoda. So Kokoda and that whole process gave me an understanding of how to set a goal, but then also knowing it's going to take time to achieve it, that delayed gratification that comes with any major goal. And um, you've got to be accountable for the work that you put in. So that's something that I used in every endeavor and in anything I did. Um, and yeah, led me all the way to Everest. So before we get too far into Everest, let's go back to that Kokoda yeah. first trek. And if I get any of my technical jargon wrong, just that's right. correct me yeah. every time. <laughs> but, um, so Kokoda at eight years of age. Now I've been to PNG five times. Yeah. Just to play footy, not to do the trek, which I want to do one day. But yeah, for me as a fully grown man, you know, in my twenties, thirties, it is, it's an intimidating place to go to as a man. So it is as an eight year old girl. (laughs) Yeah. Look, major culture shock, which is something that I wasn't really prepared for because, you know, I grew up in Toowoomba. My life before Kokoda was actually quite normal. So 
you know, went to private girls' school, um, lived in the suburbs. So massive culture shock going over to Papua New Guinea. I felt very safe, obviously, because of my dad, his army background. Um, and I just knew all the guys who were all ex-army who ran that company. I knew how professional they were. Um, so I actually didn't have any major concerns, although I remember trekking through some of the villages and they had never seen a small white girl before. And so it was this whole spectacle. We'd walk through the village and they knew we were coming because they'd all talked about it. And so you'd just get mobbed um, at, at all of the villages, which was cool, but it was kind of overwhelming as well. And um, yeah, particularly like this small white girl with blonde hair, that's something they didn't see. So um, yeah, it was, a, it was a bit out there for anything I'd ever experienced, um, but I just loved it and incredibly challenging. But I had to do a year of consistent training before I went. So three sessions every week, one of those was a pack walk and then the others were like just general fitness sessions, bit of boxing um, and sort of circuit styles training. So I'd been doing that for a year. So I was very well prepared um, when I went over and uh, yeah, just had the most amazing trip, but it was certainly daunting. You were walking into this huge unknown, having no real life experience and certainly nothing like that. So um, I just had a certain level of belief in myself though. Um, and that's something that my dad encouraged, but he did always say, you know, I'm, I'm never going to clear the path for you. Um, I had to understand that those obstacles were in place to make sure that I was ready to go. And so I started to understand that the work came with any goal that I had from there on out. Um, and so, yeah, just, I remember walking through the arches at Owa's Corner and just, it was the most amazing feeling because that comes at the end of a very long process. And there's certainly moments where you really have to push through, you have your doubts, Kokoda, every day is just never ending ups and downs for hours at a time. Um, so it is quite challenging, but yeah, I just loved it. Loved the experience. So. It's just amazing how you've taken so much of that in as an eight-year-old. Like I think eight years, I was still struggling to tie my shoelaces or trying to sneak in my mum yeah. and dad's bed because I was scared of the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was, um, yeah, certainly that experience, um, you know, you can't unexperience something. So it totally broadened um, my worldview because yeah, you kind of live in this bubble where you just know what you know. And then all of a sudden it was this massive um, expansion. And so, yeah, definitely. Um, I grew in a lot of ways by doing that trip. So it was pretty amazing. So from there, it's my understanding, you kind of set your sights on Mount Kilimanjaro, which is the largest freestanding mountain in the world, but it is. Yep. It had, you were only eight then it had age restrictions. So you had to kind of put things on the back burner a little bit there. That's right. I had this, um, I'd heard about Kilimanjaro and really fascinated me. And I, I, from a distance, I wasn't into it at that time, but I, I was fascinated by climbing and big mountains and all of that. And so Kilimanjaro was an interest of mine. And again, I knew a couple of people who had done it. So I was kind of around this culture of adventure. Um, so again, it was like, it's challenging, but it's achievable. But then yeah, I did my research and I found out you had to be 12 and I was like eight or nine at the time. Um, so I it was a few years away. And so uh, I started looking around it. Okay, well, maybe what could the next thing be? And um, inevitably, Everest Base Camp came up. So that's what I set my sights on next. And I remember going to my dad and saying, you know, is this something we could do? And at the time, that wasn't a trip that their company offered. So we ended up doing that trip, but going over there and kind of doing it as a recce to see how you would run it if we were going to do it for the company. And, and that's kind of how the adventures actually expanded. So they were specifically a Kokoda business back then. And then it kind of grew as clients wanted to go and do other things. So same for me. I uh, looked into it, found Everest Base Camp and, you know, we sort of had another conversation about, well, 
you've got to put in that year of training again. You're going to have to be really consistent. Um, just because you've done Kokoda doesn't necessarily mean you'll be successful on this one. And also the big factor of concern was the altitude. Because at Everest Base Camp alone, you're at 5,300 metres above sea level. So you're already breathing about half the amount of oxygen per breath that we are at sea level. Um, and so as a 10-year-old, that's going to have an even bigger impact as well. Um, so it's, it's definitely requires a lot of resilience to sort of trek and climb at altitude. Um, but yeah, so did the same thing. Year of training, went over to Kathmandu in Nepal. And again, massive culture shock. It was a completely different environment than Papua New Guinea and certainly home in Australia. But uh, yeah, definitely still to this day, one of my favourite places in the world that always sort of left an imprint on me, just being around that sort of mountain culture. And you know that this is where all the highest mountains in the world are. You're getting to trek into the Himalayan mountains. Um, so yeah, I just had another great experience, but yeah, much tougher than anything I'd ever done before being at altitude. So when you went to that base camp, did that kind of more flick a switch for you? Because through reading your book, it almost sounds how you describe it, like magical, like a magical experience, just everything being over there, the culture, the mountains, everything. Yeah, I've loved a lot of the places I've travelled. Um, I've learned something from all of them, but Nepal left an imprint on me that a lot of other places didn't, like just that first trip that I went there. Um, there was something about it that did feel magical to me um, and I felt very at home there. Um, so for me, it's always kind of felt like a second home and I think it is just that culture of the world's highest mountains and the Sherpa culture and, um, yeah, I just loved it and um, loved getting to trek through all the Sherpa villages on the way up to Everest Base camp so yeah that was a really um pivotal trip for me and also in there you squeezed some boxing in you had some fights I did yes <laughs> um well that actually came about because I think I did it when I started training for Kokoda um and I it was probably something I would have inevitably tried because again I was around a lot of people um who were boxing my dad trained a lot of amateur and professional fighters um as well as corporates just for fitness and that um so it's something that I was around and it was part of my Kokoda training. So other than my pack walks, he said, all right, um, Monday, Wednesday, Friday after school, come into the gym and, you know, I'll teach you some boxing technique and then you'll join in with the fitness side of things as well. Um, and again, just loved that. I think that was, um, really important for me I had even as a little kid a lot of sort of internal aggression and hyperactive and it's like the perfect outlet for that so um yeah I just loved it as well and so did, had a few amateur fights um here and there but eventually it kind of became too hard to balance the adventure with the boxing because they're so different um in terms of what your body is required to do so um eventually decided to go down the adventure route but um had a few years of um boxing training and then yeah getting to fight some amateur fights as well well so 14 you eventually got to Kilimanjaro talk us yes. through that yeah so in 2011 that was I was 14 and uh, got the opportunity to go over to Africa and hike up Mount Kilimanjaro um, so again same process I had to do a year of training and I was quite nervous for this one because again it was a higher alt altitude than anything I'd ever been to but you're also ascending that much quicker and you sort of hear some horror stories about the amount of people that get sick. There's a lot of altitude sickness um, because people do ascend really quickly. 
Um, so with Everest Base Camp, you feel it, but it's a lot more gradual because it takes just the distance that it takes um, and the way the trail is laid out. You've got more time to acclimatise, whereas Kilimanjaro is straight up and you don't do much acclimatisation. So you definitely feel the effects on that one. Um, but yeah, again, just loved it. Got to experience a whole different culture over in Africa and... Um, for me, I actually enjoyed it much more than most other trips, as much as I, lo- I loved all of them. Nepal and, and Kilimanjaro stood out to me um, because they were mountains. And it was actually quite a significant trip for me on that one because it definitely pushed my limit, um, taught me what I was capable of at that time, um, particularly summit night. It was my first sort of real summit night where you're getting up at midnight, you're having to hike through the cold with a head torch on you've got a pounding headache and you've just got to find a way in your own mind to work through that and not quit and not give up so it really required me to dig deep it was a tough tough day Um, but we got to the summit and it was around that sort of the end of that trip that was a turning point for me as well because that's when I decided there's there's something here for me Um, and I was kind of at a point in my life where I was a bit frustrated um, with a lot of other things I didn't really see a path to go down that I was excited about and um, that's that was kind of a moment where I was like I think I want to pursue this whatever that looks like Um, and that's when the idea of Everest came up I mean I'd always wanted to climb Everest, I think, since I was probably six or seven. But, you know, it was this big faraway thing that I thought someday I would like to get there and climb it. I had no real timeline on that, um, just kind of see how it unfolds. And uh, after Kilimanjaro, I was like, I want to start working toward that. Um, And at that time, I didn't know what that looked like. But, yeah, when I got back from Kilimanjaro, I think I had... That, that trip pushed me harder than I ever had before um, and it gave me a newfound respect for how strong I was mentally and that's when I started to wonder, could I do this at the highest level? Could I climb on big 8,000 metre mountains? Could I climb Everest? Um, so I started that process then. So that would be probably the time that you've seen Everest as an actual possibility and you started to verbalise it, then you started to say, well, I'm going to climb Everest instead of just being a dream. Absolutely. Yeah. It's not something I'd ever voiced to anyone before that. Um, I think I'd asked my dad when I was really young about it, um, about Everest, if he knew much about it or anyone who had done it, but it was a pretty casual conversation and he was like, oh no, not really. And, um, you know, he wasn't into that sort of big mountain climbing or anything like that. Um, But even I remember when I was training for Kokoda and we'd go and get all our trekking gear you go into the mountain design stores and they have all of the elite Australian mountaineers up on the walls. So that was also kind of an introduction to it. It would show you Everest and all these big mountains that they climbed. And so as a kid, I was like, oh, so that's a thing, you know, people actually do this. Um, So that world kind of fascinated me. And that was even before, you know, going to Nepal and all these other sort of influences along the way. Um, But yeah, it was after Kilimanjaro that I actually said to my dad, I want to climb Mount Everest. And again, we had no idea how long that was going to take. It could take 10 years. Um, You know, I had to then really pretty much, I had to adopt the same process that I'd done for Kokoda and every other trip, but on a much, much higher level. And I knew that was going to take years. And I, at the time, I believed I had the right characteristics deep down. I thought I had the right resilience but I knew I needed a lot of training to sort of bring that out. So um, the more research I did, the the more I realized it's not just physical, it's a a mental game. Absolutely. And you've got to be able to bring those two together. Um, So that was really the start of the process of getting ready for Everest. So you're a young girl, you've done Kokoda at eight, gun boxer, 
you've just climbed <laughs> Mount Kilimanjaro, one, you know, the highest freestanding yep. on earth. Everyone, you'd probably, from an outsider looking in, you'd perceive everything would be sweet, you know, life's awesome. But how were you handling like the day-to-day things with school, bullies, negative feedback? Because I can imagine not many eight-year-olds go to do Kokoda and you climb mountains and start talking about Mount Everest. How was all that? Yeah, look, that was a major struggle throughout my life and something that was really hard to kind of merge those two worlds. So for a long time, it was like living in two different worlds. Um, So not many people at school or that I knew day to day had any idea about what I did outside of that. They kind of knew, but they didn't really get it. And I really kept those two things separate for a long time. And then after Kilimanjaro, I was like, I don't want to do that anymore. I want to go hard at this thing that I'm passionate about. Um, But yeah, that was a huge issue. Um, Bullying was a big one. I grew up in a town too that was quite small and definitely big on tall poppy syndrome. Unfortunately, you stick your neck out, inevitably there's going to be attacks around that. Um, And very traditional in terms of like, you need to follow this path. And here I was going, I'm going in a completely different direction um, that, yeah, totally wasn't normal. So that was a big struggle. Um, And I was grateful that I had you know, certain people around me like my dad. Um, but I had to be really selective with who I chose to listen to. I had to be really selective about the mentors that I had because I knew that was what was required if I wanted to do this. Um, I had to be able to ignore all that other noise. Um, and that's easier said than done when you do have to face it every single day. Um, but yeah, that, that was a consistent sort of struggle throughout my life as I was doing these things, definitely. Do you reckon that negativity that you experienced, do you reckon that pushed you more to that, you know, that extreme, what you really wanted to chase? You really wanted to set yourself Mm -hmm. apart even more than instead of bring yourself back to the field? I think that was the case. I think I reached a point where I knew you can't have a foot in both world anymore. Like, especially if you want to take this to the level that you do. So I do think it pushed me um, because I was kind of, like I said, one foot in each world. I kind of did this thing on the side and then I was pretty normal day to day or at least tried to be. And then it got to a point where, you know, I was like, look, I'm being bullied anyway. Um, This thing is making me stand out, which, you know, when you're in school is not always a great thing. Um, And yeah, I think it ended up pushing me to go, you know what, I'm just going to go hard at this. This is who I am. This is who I want to be. And really had to own that um, and just decided I didn't mind if I got attacked for it. It was worth it for me. I thought, you know, in 10 years, I'm going to regret not going for it because it didn't make sense to everyone else. Um, You know, and, and I definitely would have regretted that. So I at least wanted to go down this path and see where it took me. Um, and even the pursuit of that to me was worth it, not even knowing what the outcome was going to be necessarily. Um, so yeah, I think it was worth it, but it was definitely a big challenge. But a lot of that negativity did push me to go, you know what, I'm going to go for it. Um, because the alternative is, and this is something that I learned on Kokoda and every trip sits, the alternative is I've got to shrink myself to make others more comfortable. And I'm just not okay with that. So I made a decision quite early on in my life that I would rather reach my potential or at least try to, um, as far as I can than to sort of shrink myself down to, to fit back in. But I think that was the challenging thing I learned even from Kokoda. It was like, you can kind of have one or the other, but you're not going to be able to do all these things if you're too scared to do that. I love that. I love that. Okay. So that kind of brings us to Everest. And I guess I'm not sure how much people out there actually know about climbing. And I was one of these people. I've been lucky enough. I've read your book now, but I've been studying some 
exercise at altitude in my degree. So yeah. I've come across a few things, but I think people could be forgiven to think, okay, I want to climb Mount Everest. I train hard. I fly over there. I start my ascent. I get to base camp. I go base camp, camp one, camp two, camp mm-hmm. three. I summit, take a picture. Obviously it's tough, but you, know, yep. you make your way back down. You come home. That's it. That's completely nowhere near anything with, you know, training, money, oh, yeah. <laughs> altitude, risks, hypoxia, edema, yep. you know, everything like that. And then you take in avalanche, the, the environment, avalanches and snow yeah. and the cold. Can you just talk us through everything that comes into an expedition to summit Mount Everest and the science behind it and all everything? Yeah. So basically Everest takes two months to climb. And the reason is because of your acclimatization. So climbing at high altitude, you can't just go up and summit um, because your body wouldn't handle the lack of oxygen. So what we do is we fly over to Kathmandu in Nepal. Um, and this is just the expedition start. This isn't all the training that goes with it. But once you're ready to go, you fly over to Kathmandu. You'll then spend a couple of days getting organized and basically get all your last minute things together because what you've got for two months is what you've got now. Um, so we then fly to a little village called Lukla and that's at the foothills of the Himalayan mountains and that's already over 3000 meters. So you're already higher than any point in Australia. And then we begin a 10 day trek into the base camp of Everest, but base camp is then our home away from home. So we set up a mess tent. Everyone's got their expedition teams. You've got your own personal tent and that's your home for the next two months. And we spend about six weeks doing what we call rotations. So you'll climb from base camp to camp one, and then you'll come back down to base camp. Um, And then you'll go up again a little bit higher. So you're slowly conditioning your body to higher levels of altitude. And that just gives it time to adapt. So it actually will grow more red blood cells and then you can carry more oxygen. Um, so, but each of those days is a tough, tough day of climbing. I mean, it's not unusual to redline on day one. Um, and you've got to really be able to back that up for at least 30 days of big, big climbing. Um, but everything works around a weather window. Um, so there's one week, usually at the end of May, every year where the jet stream winds on the summit of Everest will lift and you can actually go for it. Otherwise um, the winds are just too high to climb up there. You'd get blown straight off the mountain. So everything that we do, all of the training, all of the expedition revolves around, you know, the couple of days where you're trying to summit basically. So we constantly watch weather forecasts in base camp. We get those sent to us and we're comparing them and trying to work out sort of what the best day is. But ultimately we're at the mercy of the mountain. So when you're on Everest, anything can happen and the plan changes daily, sometimes hourly. Um, But yeah, there's high, high avalanche risk, particularly in the first section of the climb. So the Kumbu Icefall is one of the most dangerous. And that's where you see, um, if you've ever watched movies or anything around this, that's where all those ladders are, the bridge, these big crevasses. Um, And it's a a running glacier underneath. So it's constantly shifting and moving. Uh, No climber really likes to be in there for that long. Um, So we try and get through there as quick as possible. And again, high avalanche risk in that section as well. Um, You've then also got what's called the death zone. So camp four, the final camp on Everest and above, um, or any altitude that's 8,000 meters and above is called the death zone. Because even with all of that acclimatization, we've really only got 24 hours up there. You Mm -hmm. need to be able to get up and get out within that 24 hour period. 
because you'll run out of oxygen. Um, typically you haven't eaten or slept in days just because your body can't at altitude. And it's funny, you're, you're burning like 10,000 calories a day on Everest just because your body has to work so hard just to be up there. So your metabolism is in overdrive and um, that gets worse, obviously, as you get higher. So you actually have to force yourself to eat because your body just doesn't want to. Um, and it's effectively starting to shut down. So particularly as you get to the higher sections is where it really becomes a mental game. But that's kind of a, a nutshell of the two months that you're spending on Everest. Yeah, that's, <laughs> it, it's crazy that so much goes into it. And as you said, you're at the mercy of the mountain. So you could do everything right yep. and then you don't even get to summit anyway, which is what happened to you in your first two attempts. Like, correct me if I'm wrong, 14, yeah, yep. 15, you were mm -hmm. turned back through no fault of your own. If I ever say failures, like, is it not a failure to climb? That's right. <laughs> um, no fault of your own. And then even some of your lead up climbs before your first attempt, you were turned back, which I can imagine yeah. would be very disappointing. How did you handle those setbacks? Because like, it's not just, oh, I turn around and go home. It's like years of work that go under this and all of a sudden you can't go back till next year and then it happens back to back and then, with those uh, lead up climbs, it's almost back to back to back to back. How did you handle those, especially those first two attempts where you, uh, where you couldn't summit? Yeah, look, it's incredibly challenging, especially when you just want that window of opportunity to prove that you can do it, um, mostly to yourself as well. Um, but it is also, you've spent so much time preparing for this. So when I had my first attempt on Everest, I'd been training full-time toward this thing for three years um so it was just primed and ready to go physically and mentally and you think great the work's done i can now go over there and perform um and we were in base camp and there was a, a big avalanche that killed 16 climbers within the first week of the season so pretty much just like that season cancelled finish go home um and that's really really challenging to overcome because you're right it's so far outside of your control um for me, I kind of sat on it for a while. I knew the desire was still there, but again, it's so circumstantial. I didn't know if I'd have the opportunity to go back. And so you, you do feel gutted because you're like, I've just spent three years of my life working toward this thing. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's just patience is a big part of um, sort of big mountain climbing. And um, I, I try and learn from every expedition, no matter what. I try not to view it as only when I summit have I succeeded. Um, I learn something every single day from every climb um, about myself, about the mountain. So even though you, you want to summit, particularly when you've got sponsors and, and you know, all of that. But for me, it was like, I, I should take something away from each climb. Um, whether it's learning about my own capability, um, learning something that was maybe a weakness for next time. So I tried not to let any sort of expedition be a wasted expedition, even though you'd prefer to summit. Um, but yeah, I returned to Everest for the second season in 2015 and uh, had put in another year of training. So this was four years at that point. And I think when you have put that much time in, it's sort of hard to, to let it go as well. But also... A big part of returning for me and why I didn't let those two initial expeditions sort of set me back too much is because I'd done so much work with different mentors around my mindset on the mountain, um, not just the physical aspect, not just wanting to summit, not the record, but understanding sort of how to conduct myself in a worst case scenario. And I also understood that 
for me, this was so, it was important that it wasn't a gimmick or about tagging a summit, but I wanted to know that I'm the person who's capable of doing this. And that means that you have to act that way long before you actually achieve it. So you have to have the habits, the mindset, the skills. You have to be constantly reinforcing that along the way, which is why it's so challenging. So you constantly have to demand better of yourself. So for me, a large part of it was proving that like I'm good enough to be here because someone who summits Everest doesn't quit when things get hard. So that was kind of my motivation for going back. I was like, I think I'm someone who's capable of being an Everest summiteer and this is the opportunity to prove it when things haven't gone my way. If anything, it matters more in those moments that you hold yourself to that standard. Um, so yeah, I returned for the second, um, attempt in 2015 and we'd been in base camp for a couple of weeks this time and the Nepal earthquake hit on the day that we were meant to start climbing. So we were in base camp and typically base camp's the safest place on the mountain. Um, you're far enough away from everything. It's pretty, um, relaxed environment, but you are surrounded 360 by big mountains and the earthquake and the magnitude of it triggered all of those to create a big avalanche that ripped through base camp, destroyed most of the camps. Um, 20 climbers were killed and a lot more were injured. So immediately it went from an expedition to just rescue. Um, so we set up three different evacuation points and hospitals and just had to work on getting everyone injured or killed out. And then, you know, we were kind of stuck in limbo because we had very little um, communication. So I immediately sat phoned my dad and said, look, you're going to be hearing about this. I'm okay, but we're just doing the best we can right now. And then he was messaging me, informing me of how big the numbers around Nepal were because we didn't know how much had been affected and it was thousands. So we just did the best we could. Then when we were over there to try and help, but um, we were kind of stuck on the Everest base camp trail for a couple of weeks after that because we couldn't get home, but we also weren't safe in base camp with all of the aftershocks and things like that. So um, yeah, again, you're at the mercy of the mountain and, and nature and you've just got to react in the best way possible. And that's certainly what a lot of my training had taught me. Um, I was very fortunate. I was almost killed in that avalanche, but was just slightly enough out of the way that whilst our camp was hit, I mostly got buried in my tent, but I was able to get out. Um, and again, also thanks to my training of just being able to react really quickly. And if nothing else, it did prove to me that I was calm under pressure. Um, I'd performed the way I'd hoped to, but you just never know until a real situation like that hits you. So those are my first two experiences on the mountain. Um, so certainly there's all the excuse in the world to not go back if you, you know, anyone would understand if you didn't. But for me, it was really important that I held myself to that standard all the time, no matter what, because I knew that that's what's required for what I've chosen to do. Um, so then, yeah, eventually returned for my third attempt. But training for the third attempt was incredibly difficult mentally because you have to push out all of those doubts of like, oh, something's going to go wrong because two of the most unimaginable things on the mountain that could have happened, happened. Um, so they were so far out of even what the most seasoned climbers were used to experiencing. Um, so yeah, it's very difficult to push all of that out, but I knew the motivation in going back for the third time for me was I want to be that good physically, mentally. I'm going to use this adversity to make me better. And then even if there's any chance that I can summit, if there's the smallest window, I want to make sure I'm ready for it, but I'm not going to go back if I'm not a hundred percent. So yeah, that was kind of a, a three year period of my life with those three attempts. Yeah. But definitely challenging to come back from those setbacks. 
I don't know if people actually grasp the magnitude of it, but I almost think that your, your lead up was kind of more impressive than your summit. I guess like from my point of view, because yeah. <laughs> the more I get into your story, it's mm-hmm. so I think the 2014, when the 16 Sherpas died from the ice fall, yeah. that was the first time the mountain's ever been closed since it was first summit. So the mountain ever. was closed, cancelled. And then that's right. you think, oh, well, that's a once in a lifetime. That's never happened again. We'll go back the next year, get it done. Yeah. You think and no way. No yeah. Way. Could it happen again? <laughs> and an earthquake of a huge magnitude hits the whole country. 9,000 people die. There's, mm. tw- tw- as you said, 20 odd people on the mountain that day back yep. to back. And yeah. then you're, you're fronted up for a third year. And yep. <laughs> <laughs> do you, is there anyone that you know of that went the three years in a row or that went back to well, back to back? So a lot of climbers didn't return. And when I went for my third attempt, it was a record low number of climbers because people were like, we're going to see how this season goes and then we'll come back. So most, actually most of the people on our team, we had a team of 10. Most of them had been there the three years. So we were all, I guess, pretty similar mentally and that you knew we weren't going to quit on this thing. So we had a pretty solid team because of that. Um, but yeah, a lot of people in the previous teams that I was with dropped off and, you know, were like, no, not, not coming back. Um, a lot of them. Yeah. And I guess you can't really blame them. And then here you are not at, at all. Yeah. <laughs> seven, yeah. 17, 18, 19, and you come yeah. back three years around. And as you said, these are seasoned climbers. Mm. But yeah, it, that, that kind of blows my mind, which I guess it leads me to my next one. And you still being so young and you were so young when you went through this, your relationship with death and your views on death on your mindset to death because obviously being a climber i guess death is something that you've got to come to peace with and something you've seen a hell of a absolutely yeah absolutely um so i think that first season that i was on everest was the first time i'd really experienced death up close and personal um and i'd experienced it a lot then over the next two years because there was another expedition i went on in nepal later that same year i had to keep my skills up i had to keep training so i went on a month-long expedition to a mountain over there and um again there was a russian climber that had died of altitude sickness um so yeah it's something that i'd experienced a lot Look, I'm really grateful that the people around me helped me um, mentally prepare for that. I think it's a huge part of it. But you could definitely see the climbers who just weren't ready for that aspect of it. Um, It is something you have to come to terms with because particularly like experiencing the summit day and everything, you're walking on such a thin line between life and death. It takes minute mistakes for that to go over the edge. Um, And you're so exhausted that you're really creeping up to that line all the time. And it's very hard to tell where it is. So I think in order to summit, you have to actually have accepted that to even go through the Kumbu Icefall. You have to accept that, you know, the, the 16 Sherpas who were killed, these were some of the best climbers in the world. They did all the right things and they were literally in the wrong place at the wrong time. There is nothing preventing me from having that. So that was very confronting um, going into the third expedition and looking into the icefall, knowing we're going to be climbing through that. Um, so you just don't know what's going to happen. And that is quite daunting, but it's something that I'd come to terms with. Um, for me, this person that I wanted to become an Everest summiteer, that was more important to me. Um, and I think, yeah, it made a lot of climbers assess how badly they wanted it because we had climbers there who, yeah, just thought, oh, something like that won't happen. And um, I think it was quite traumatic for them 
realizing it could, um, especially if it can happen to some of the world's best climbers. So, um, yeah, it's something that you just have to come to terms with. And I always say, uh, another climber taught me this. He said, everyone's got their own risk acceptance level on the mountain. That's different for everyone. Some people will get to a point where they go, I'm, I'm out. And we always accept that and go, cool. Um, and only you can decide how far you're willing to push that line. But particularly when you're on the higher sections of the mountain, there's no helicopter rescue. There's no access. There's no rescue. People just can't get up that high. Um, so you have to be really self-sufficient, which is part of the appeal for a lot of mountaineers, but that's a double-edged sword because you've got no safety net. Um, you really have to be able to rely on yourself and your team if anything goes wrong. So it's, it's very intense. And I think it's something you have to come to terms with before you go, but often people just haven't been in those real environments enough to really test that. Um, I was trained and mentored by definitely my dad, but also by, um, you know, ex SAS soldiers who are very, very good at building mental resilience and who understand life and death situations. So we'd played out a lot of those scenarios. I think it had felt a lot more real to me before I left than maybe other climbers as well. So that definitely helped me um, in overcoming that. And I think, if I had feared it that much, I probably wouldn't have been there um, just because I was given such realistic training. Yeah. You were definitely prepared because you actually, you wrote a death letter for yourself in the event of your death. Yeah. So you must have been prepared. Well, for, for a couple of reasons, actually. Yeah. For myself, um, for my family, but I also, the book was pretty much written before I went because it was a lot of the lead up preparation. It was Kokoda. It was telling a lot of my story, not just Everest. And so Everest was to be the final chapter. Um, and they said, look, you know, do you want to tell sort of the ending in your own words, if something is to go wrong, because you know that this is going to be everywhere. Um, and my concern was certainly for my family in that situation as well. And the attacks that they were going to get, so for me, it was about sort of telling my truth, why I was there um, and sort of ending it with my own words. Um, but that's very confronting. You know, you're leaving for an expedition where it's on your checklist. Like I've got to sort out my will. I've got to write this letter. <laughs> like It becomes weirdly routine. It becomes your new normal um, where you just know you've got to have everything at home sorted in case of something like that. Um, so you pre prepare for every single scenario that could happen. Yeah. Cause I, when I read that, it kind of, it, I got, my hair stood up on, you know, the back of my neck and I actually wrote down one of the quotes from it. You said, there's no victim what's victims on Everest. Any climber that chooses to set foot on the mountain accepts the risk. And like, hundred percent, you can probably yeah. apply that to anything across life. Like if you, you know, that just says to me, you're all in, like you're all about this. You know what That's I mean? That's right. Yeah. So the third attempt, the summit. Yep. Talk us through that because I can I can imagine after those first two the finances that involved and then mm. was the lead up different in the third one because obviously the first one especially and then the second one like you did was there like a bit of a honeymoon period like oh she's going to Everest and then the third time people was anyone like oh she's going back to Everest was there a bit of the like majesticness taken away from it at all or how how did you I definitely think there was yeah so third time around. Um, it almost became, I think the reaction was like, oh, you're right, you're going to try that thing again. So there was no sort of mysticism about it going into the third one. Um, for me, though, I still, I just believed this thing could happen um, and I decided I'm not willing to quit on it. So definitely pushing out a lot of those doubts of something going wrong um, was definitely very challenging. But again, I knew you shouldn't go if you're not all in. So 
I was sort of getting to the point where it was kind of like five, four months out and I was keeping pretty physically fit, but I knew that last three months has to be an intensive like training camp. And so I knew by then, basically by January, I had to make a call. Are you in or are you out? Um, and if you're going to go all in, go all in. So that's what I did. Um, worked with a coach, got a whole physical training plan. I was like, I want to go back fitter than I've ever been. And I kept my base fitness up. Um, and now it was just time to really go to the next level. So that's what I did. Um, and yeah, returned for a third attempt. But yeah, it was very um, sort of blasé for other people. I think they were like, oh, you know, okay, whatever. Um, and really didn't expect anything to happen. So I'm pretty sure myself and maybe my dad but even then you know he'd seen the two worst case scenarios really happen so I'm sure even he was like well who knows what's going to happen with this thing you know he was off running Kokoda trips because that's peak Kokoda season so um yeah we were kind of trying to contact sat phone to sat phone but it was predominantly just me and I was like all right I'm, I'm going again yeah so how was the climb and then how was the eventual summit was it everything you expected look it was yeah and I think um you know, the more well prepared you are and the more you can deal with sort of the monotony of getting ready for something like that, the more sort of dreamlike moments you get to have and you get to enjoy. I think it's the reverse. If you go in thinking it's just going to be summits and it's going to be magical and you haven't done the work, then it's kind of the opposite experience where it just feels like suffering. But for me, I'd put the work in. So I got over there and it really was everything I'd hoped it would be. Um, we had really big, long climbing days, but just loved it and for me I'd spent years dreaming and visualizing each section of the climb so base camp to camp one and all these iconic points along the way and it was a constant like pinch me of I'm actually standing on the Lotsy face I'm at the south pole you know I can see Lotsy's right there like it was it's almost like living a movie where you go this place that I've imagined I'm actually standing here so um, yeah I was very grateful that the weather opened up and all of that but incredibly tough climbing um, you, yeah you're pretty much hitting the wall you know, a lot, um, and having to really fight and push through it. And, uh, you've got to be able to sort of reset and then back that up day after day after day. So I had a couple of days where I really hit the wall mentally and had to push through. Um, but for the most part, just loved the experience. It was pretty cool. And you put a picture of your brother Christian at the top. I did. I took it with me. You can't leave anything up there. Um, but I took uh, a little Australia flag with me and, uh, picture of my brother Christian as well um so that was yeah I, I love being able to do that can you tell everyone a little bit about him obviously I know his story but yes could you share yep. if you would? yeah so I have a younger brother Christian so he's about eight years younger than me um he is autistic and intellectually impaired so basically he's 16 at the mental age of about five and that's you know probably reaching his upper limit. So I, you know, grew up with Christian and he and I were always really, really close um, as siblings. But it's something that we were just constantly aware of um, from the time that we knew he had these developmental issues is... I guess any excuse that my siblings or I had um, were just gone. Um, Our parents would constantly remind us that you get to do things that he just can't do purely for no other reason than luck. You know, there's, you know, he just hasn't been given the same level of health. Like he can't, you know, work for himself. He can't drive a car, all these things that you get to go and do. So for us, it's sort of highlighted, don't waste the opportunity and what you have and the potential that you have. You owe it to people like him to make the most of your experiences and and what you're able to do. So he was always a big motivator for me. 
Um, and yeah, we were constantly reminded even before Christian that, um, you know, your age is an excuse, your gender isn't an excuse because I think my dad in particular knew we would come up against that at some point. Um, and sort of people trying to drag us down and put limits on us and that, and then him were also a constant reminder of like, you need to ignore that and just go for it. Yeah. That's such a powerful message. And that's probably something that I've learned from your dad recently, no matter where you're at in your life, there's people out there that would swap their, you know, yeah, best I think you can get so, absolutely. And you can get so stuck in, you know, what you're doing and I'm guilty of it until you have that perspective shift, you know, you can get so tunnel vision and mm. it, it would be easy after, you know, what I'd experienced to have that sort of victim mindset. But then, you know, you take Christian into school when he was younger and, you know, half the kids are even worse off than him. They can't move. They're fully disabled. Um, you know, sometimes don't even make it out of school. So that kind of is a reality check to go. The fact that you even get the opportunity to do this um, is something you shouldn't take for granted. So you didn't really have time for much of an Everest hangover, I guess, because you had two that, that was 16, you had 17 off and then yes. 18, you've summoned it again, but from I did <laughs> the from the North side. side. Yeah. Is that, is that so, the Tibetan side? That is the Tibetan side, yeah. Okay. So my first summit was on the south side in Nepal and then uh, the north side in Tibet. Um, so they're kind of the two most prominent routes you can take. I mean, there's a lot of ways you can climb Everest, but those are the two sides of the mountain effectively. So what's the two comparisons, I guess, and what was the difference between you summiting from the north and, and the south? So the south side is iconic for a different reason so it was the way that Everest was first ever climbed by Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Norgay so that's kind of the iconic route and for me too um, I really knew Nepal quite well I'd done that same trek to base camp so there was no doubt in my mind when I first went to Everest um, that it was going to be on the Nepalese side even though you've got that ice fall and and all of that Um, but I'd say the south side is it's still a lot of endurance. It's very steep. Um, it's more technical. There's more skill set required. When you're on the north side, it's pretty much all endurance. It's a lot longer distance. Um, summit night is much longer. And I'd say the north side summit night was probably tougher in a lot of ways um, because you're climbing up on this ridge line at the top of the world. And so any of the weather, the winds that you get, you're just getting hammered by that. Um, so definitely summit night on the North side, I found much tougher. Yeah. And what have you, what have you been up to since the last summit to, I guess this point? So that was, that was 18. Mm. Yep. 19, 20, obviously 20 is a bit slowed down now with COVID. Yeah. But yeah. Did you do much in between there or? So, Oh, look, I I loved um, getting to summit via the north side. And when I'd first, you know, gone to summit Everest the first time, I really didn't know what life after that was going to look like. Um, There was no plan around that. And so um, eventually decided to return to Everest and go to the iconic north face of the mountain. Um, But at the end of all that, I burnt out pretty hard. I'd sort of been burning the candle at both ends for a lot of years. And, you know, also there were a lot of those experiences with, so much death at a very young age Um, and then just stuff I had going on in my personal life that, you know, you just, you always had something on. So I never really stopped to dealt with any of that. It was like onto the next. Um, So it was a pretty high tempo, fast paced lifestyle. And I just got to a point where my physical health had really started to deteriorate. Um, And so that's when I decided, all right, I need to 
take a step back away from climbing and focus on other things. And so that's what I started to do. So yeah, more just started to spend time with family um, and just focus on the business side of things as well. I did guide a couple of trips. Um, so here and there, I'll still do that. I led a trek to Everest Base Camp um, in 2019. So for our companies. We had um, 10 Australians go over there and trek up to base camp. Um, and I led that trip, which I love any of the Nepal trips that we do. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, sort of just guiding and then running the business from home. So still only 23, still say young, world at your feet, whatever you want to do. Um, and most people say, I think like y- y- your psychological peak comes your late twenties, thirties, and then marathon runners, they don't hit their peak running until in their thirties. And even at altitude, you don't really get into your peak till kind of your forties and you're still, you've yeah. done all this and you know, you're still <laughs> only 23. Have you, have you, do you think you've ticked the boxes as far as your adventure in mountaineering and you want to go on a different path now, or do you still have goals to go back and achieve in the climbing ranks or do you think because I, I read a lot of people just say they get to a certain point and it's it's too dangerous and they they mm. want to move on or do you still have more that you want to achieve there yeah look i'm kind of in the middle at the moment so i would say that there's probably still more i'll do in mountaineering um and it's actually exciting to me that the idea that i haven't even reached my peak yet so you know what is that going to look like i think there'll be some big mountains still ahead um but yeah i also i got to a point where you're right. You, you do start to want to take less risk. Um, you become more aware of the risks and also your priorities are just different as you start to get older. And, um, so yeah, who, who knows whether I'll, I'll still want to take those same risks over the next few years. I kind of take it expedition by expedition. Um, and if I ever get to the point where I know I'm just not willing to accept the risks anymore, I'll, I'll step away and walk away from it. Um, but I think still now there's probably some big climbs still ahead of me, um, that I'll go back to, but yeah, I sort of needed to take a step back, um, just refocus and find a bit more balance in my life. Probably the biggest challenge coming off Everest is I didn't really know how to transition out of that really laser focused, single-minded period for five years. Um, and also the change of just that loss of identity. The thing that's defined you for that period is now gone like that um, almost overnight. So you then have to sort of work out, all right, who am I now without this thing? Um, so I think it was really important for me to do that as well, um, which I'm now at a point where I'm a lot healthier than I was a couple of years ago. Um, but yeah, kind of, took getting to breaking point to go, okay, something's not right here. Um, I need to reset myself and then go again. But yeah, I think it's important to me that I'm not completely defined by mountaineering in the future. Um, as much as I love it, um, as much as I will continue to have big climbs, there'll definitely be things in other areas that I want to pursue as well. Well, I'm sure that mindset that you've developed, you just take that and you apply that to the next thing. And uh, the exciting, exciting thing, I think with you being 23, you could have, 10 years off not looking at a mountain and still come back in your That's right. Yeah, it's actually, it's a sport that luckily lends itself to, it doesn't matter if you're getting older because you actually do improve, your endurance improves. Um, See, I haven't even peaked yet. So it's it's not something where it's like you've missed your window and you're done. Um, Yeah, so you can sort of come back to it and um, all of that experience is there, that muscle memory is there, even though you've got to 
you know, reacclimatize. Once you've experienced that, that's your level of resilience now. Um, and your body does remember. So you get back into sort of the expedition lifestyle pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, for me, it was just about sort of finding a bit more balance in my life. And I am very fortunate as well to be around my dad who, who understands a lot of that mindset. I think, um, there are a lot of mountaineers who just don't know how to get out of it or do anything else. But because I was undertaught, I was sort of undertook and taught the psychology of how to do those things. Um, I had a bit of insight into this isn't unique to mountaineering. I can take this process and put it toward anything that I want to do. Um, yeah, that's, that's really helpful to have as well. Yeah. I get that would be the most important thing because you, as you said, if you transition that off to whatever else you just think what is possible. And I guess you see that across a lot of things, not just mountaineering, professional sport, people lose that, what they do and they lose that identity. But would you consider yeah. anything like, I know you've done a lot of SAS training and yeah. look up to some guys with that. Would you, mm. is that anything you've ever considered with obviously a, tr a female trailblazer in the SAS scene? Oh, look, um, I think I'm past that point now if yeah. I was going to do it. Um, yeah. I think that's something I looked at it in high school. If I hadn't have done Everest, I probably would have joined the army. I think I needed something that was very physically and mentally engaging. And I was looking for just that environment that I could throw myself into um, because I knew I was very single minded. So I liked that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, I've, I had an offer a few years ago to potentially try out for selection for a direct recruiting scheme that they do in special forces. But, you know, this was pre having ever summited Everest. So I was very much in that process wanting to prove to myself like that I, I can summit. I didn't want to leave that question unanswered if I didn't have to. And um, so kind of wanted to wait for that opportunity to open up. So um, yeah, look, I, I work with a lot of guys in that realm and a lot of my mindset comes from them. So it's something that's always sort of fascinated me, but I think you've got to be totally a hundred percent committed to that life. If you're going to do it. hundred percent. All right. We've got a couple of questions for people. Do you have time just to. Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you very much. I had I actually had one person write in and say she wants to sit down and have dinner with your parents because she's struggling to get her teenagers to make their bed, let alone climb Mount Everest. You know what's funny? Most of the questions are around that. We do, we get a lot of parents like, and that's why my dad and I tend to do talks together now. Cause we literally always get, they want to hear both sides of yep. not just what I did, but then the parenting perspective and how did you sort of manage that? Um, yes, we do a lot of that now. It's a lot of the questions we get. Okay. First one, can you give us a little, insight into the Sherpas and yeah, their personality, yep. their culture and stuff, because you obviously you hear that always attached to people summiting, but you yes. don't. Yeah. Yeah. So the Sherpas, um, yeah, they, they, a lot of them, so are from the Tibetan area, um, but mainly throughout Nepal um, and throughout Kathmandu. So I've been very fortunate to get to know a lot of the Sherpas. Um, so when we trek to Everest base camp, we actually go through a lot of the villages that they were born and raised in um so sherpas are their own culture um and sherpa is actually their last name so it's not a job a lot of people think um sherpa is the porter um but that's actually their last name um so they'll be you know whatever their first name is sherpa all of them um so they're kind of their own culture over there um yeah and a lot of them run tea houses along the everest space camp trail um and then a lot of them will, will get into climbing because it's such good work for them. Um, but yeah, such amazing, beautiful people over there. They're so giving. Um, and it's funny because they're such resilient people, but they're also just very gentle um, and very giving. So yeah, like 
we trekked through a lot of the villages where they went to school. Um, one of our um, doctors on the expedition was a Sherpa. So he went to a school that Sir Edmund Hillary had set up over in Nepal um, and then went on to study to become a doctor and was now working on our expedition. So um, yeah, the, the Sherpas are just such amazing people. Um, but yeah, climbing is a very small part of, of what they do really. Um, they love it, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of other things they do as well. Because in your book, is it the ice doctors? Do they call themselves? So they actually the ice doctors. Book? Yeah. Yes, the ice doctors have the specific job of that icefall section. Um, so they set the lines because basically, since that glacier is always shifting and moving, and these big giant um, sort of ice seracs that are the size of buildings sort of sit on top of each other you know, what, what might be a small crevasse today will have opened up and now requires two ladders to get across tomorrow. So it's moving that quickly. Um, so it's their job to effectively make sure all the ropes are set in that section, go up and set the ladders. Um, and that's a pretty big honour for those of them who, who do that. Um, yeah, so they're kind of their own section of the Sherpa culture as well as the Icefall doctors who do that job. And the ladders across the crevasses, are they just normal ladders? They're just down? like Bunnings, just ladders. And they've just tied ropes together. I remember climbing across one that was like three that they just <laughs> put tied together with pretty thin looking rope. <laughs> it's, it's not like these aren't ever a special ladders. You can go and get them down at the local hardware store um, and they just stack them together and off you go. So um, I remember climbing one that... Um, I think there were maybe four straight up. And so as you start to get higher and higher up, it just starts to get shaky oh. and you just can't wait to get off it. But that, that section is so unusual. That's the thing. Like um, there's just not really a way to actually climb through it. Um, you would be in there forever. So it requires those ladders, but yeah, they're, they're pretty dainty. <laughs> um, next one. What, drives your determination to put yourself in these situations and i guess coming off what we just talked about do you think that mm. determination's now changed a little bit i think it has i think it just becomes more refined um and more deliberate yeah i think you start to it's still there but you start to go all right what do where do i want to put this what's the outcome going to be and you do become more aware of the risks as time goes on and you're sort of weighing up that risk versus reward particularly as your priorities change um but yeah, when I was younger, it was kind of blind determination and I was very fortunate to have people around me who were like, you know, you need to find a positive way to channel that. And for me, that was sports. It was hiking. It was boxing. Um, but I think, you know, a, a lot of kids probably have that, um, but it's kind of limited and, you know, pushed down a little bit um, just because we as a society tend to do that. And um, yeah, I was very fortunate to have people around me who didn't want to squash that, but just wanted to help me understand how to set sort of positive goals and how to use that in the right way. Um, but yeah, I think it just changes a little bit as you get older as well. Very good. Um, since Everest, do you still train to keep your mind locked in for everyday life or is that tough mindset set in stone and like everyday challenges when you compare them against Everest challenges, they just don't phase you or do you still have to keep up that mental fortitude? I think you I still have to keep it up. Um, I think it's something that does have to be practiced. Um, it's definitely, I think something like Everest. And if I go back to sort of a big mountaineering objective in the future, I think it just ramps it up toward the end of that. Um, that like certainly what I've done creates this base where you've got context now on 
okay, I know what I can push myself through. I've just got to find sort of the right motivation. Um, and I know myself well enough now to know if I'm not putting in the work or dedicating myself to the process, it's probably just not right for me or I don't want it bad enough. And that's okay. Go and find something else that you do. Um, but I think it's something you have to train. And um, if you're away from it too long, it's, it's very easy, even with everything that I've done, it's easy to get complacent. It's easy to get comfortable. And uh, for me, what kind of got me out of that rut, um, there was a period of time where I wasn't training at all and certainly didn't feel at my best. Um, for me, it was just setting goals to grow in different ways. Um, so yeah, you just need something that's engaging for you. But yeah, I think um, mindset something you've got to practice. Um, it's like a muscle. The more you use it, um, the better off. And yeah, those big expeditions kind of just make me take it to another level. Um, but I always try and keep up with that. Okay. Um, I know we've kind of covered this, but if you had to sum, sum it up in a short sentence, if you could, mm. what, what feeling did you get when you summoned Everest? So... I've said before, it's, it's surreal, but even more than that, I had this feeling when I stood on the summit, it feels like time stands still. Um, it's a very weird feeling because particularly as you're climbing, it's kind of a, a mental and physical fight within your own brain to keep pushing yourself. And then all of a sudden you look up and I can see I'm like 10 steps away. Um, so the best way to describe it couple of things one it feels like time stands still um or it's actually weirdly peaceful once you get onto the summit um all you, all you can feel and hear is your own breathing and the oxygen tank um and you're just looking down on some of the highest mountains in the world you're so far above the clouds it feels like you're in another world um yeah that's probably the best way to sum it up and actually i've heard climbers describe it like this before and i think it's pretty accurate is you just feel like there's nothing above you because there's not you just get you get up there and you go like I'm literally at the top of the world. So yeah, it's just a crazy feeling. That's awesome. And was that when you were up there, when you summited twice, was the view good? Was it kind of a clear day and you could see around? It was. And we weren't sure about that. So even on my successful summit, we kind of thought we might get shut out by winds because we were halfway up the mountain on the summit push. So this is the last couple of days and we were getting reports that there might be hurricane winds coming off the coast of Japan that are going to come in and affect the weather on Everest. So we were just like, we're going to get as far as we can. Um, and then we were very fortunate that summit night was just crystal clear. Um, and God, the stars, you feel like you're climbing up in the stars. It's pretty surreal. That's crazy. Okay, two more, two more quick ones. Yeah. Um, who are your heroes? Oh, you know, it's funny. I've never had a specific hero. There's certain people throughout my life I've always looked up to um, who have had a big impact, but I think there's always just been like a high level of respect there. I think I always had the desire to create my own story um, and not necessarily try and emulate anyone else. Um, but for me, I had the opportunity when I was quite young to train, particularly when I was right into boxing with Kostya Zoo. So he was one of them. Um, my dad, definitely one of them, um, had a huge impact on me from quite a young age. Um, definitely my mum as well. So she was the first female vehicle mechanic in the Australian army. So she was always a really solid influence as well. Um, and then definitely Keith Fennell. So that mentor of mine who trained me for Everest, who was XSAS. Um, I'd say those are the top four. Awesome. Um, 
this is just kind of a side note. I was going to mention this off air, but it's on the, it's on the heroes uh, topic. There was a chapter in your book. I think it's Bridget Muir. She was the first Australian woman to climb Mount Everest. Yes, that's correct. Because through the book for people that haven't read the book, it's like a story in your journey. Then it kind of go, every other chapter goes to a famous or successful climber and they give their opinion on you climbing at such a young age. Um, it almost felt like I took so much from that chapter because it felt like the other people, like they were all very mm. nice in what they were saying, but it was almost like they were talking at you. And then I read yeah. hers and it was like, she was talking to you. Like she just seemed like such a crazy person. I don't know if you've met her in real life, but that was just something. I actually haven't. We've sort of almost crossed paths a lot. Um, but no, I haven't met her personally. Obviously I've heard a lot about her. I read her book when I was in training for Everest, um, you know, just to get a sense of, yeah, what she went through in her journey and trying to learn a little bit about it. So, um, yeah, I knew her, her story quite well. And it's interesting with a lot of those mountaineers, like I certainly look up to them as climbers, but you do have to take it with a grain of salt as well. Um, and you're right. A lot of them do talk at you. Um, so I really enjoyed her chapter as well. Um, because yeah, she knows what that pursuit is like, um, I think, and especially as a woman, but I think it's really important to know that like, I just didn't buy into a lot of the statistics. I wasn't too concerned with their sort of opinion of what I was doing, particularly because I didn't know these people. I was really concerned with, you know, those that I looked up to that I worked with who really wanted to see me succeed. So I was very selective with who I listened to in that process. So as much as I sort of admired some of these mountaineers, I also knew that, you know, I've really got to walk my own path on this and not be too affected by that. Yeah. That's great. Like that's an achievement in itself. Someone so young, just blocking out these, you know, almost, you know, mountaineering gods or, you know, just in real life. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Last one. What, or the, it kind of ties in, runs off that perfectly. Yeah. What's the importance of walk, walking your own path versus mm. taking advice off everyone else? I think that probably sums up my story yeah. <laughs> in one line. Um, yeah. And, you know, the thing is when you're in it, it can be nerve wracking because maybe they are right about you. Maybe you aren't capable of, of doing this. I just didn't feel um, comfortable putting that in other people's hands. Um, I always wanted to, yeah, like I said, walk my own path and, and not be scared to do that. And there's a lot of things telling you not to, um, but my gut instinct always said, you know, this is the path that you need to go down and, and to trust yourself. And I think, a lot of my earlier experiences were helpful with that, like going to Kokoda and like I had a lot of people telling me you won't make it, you won't be capable of it. Um, and then I got over there and I did it and it was hugely challenging, but I remember standing at Owa's Corner and I'm eight years old and I thought, I don't know why they told me I couldn't do that. Like I was very capable of it. And that was a really eye opening moment where as a kid, I realized even all of these authority figures, they didn't know what I was capable of. And they actually set the bar far lower than what I could do. And I think from that point on, I set my own bar because I was like, you know, I'm not going to live up to my potential if I allow everyone else to tell me what I'm capable of um, because it's just not true. Um, so I think that then kind of set me on that path to go, I'm going to trust myself and believe I can do this. And then you've always got that reference point. So there were absolutely nerves that, you know, I, you know, I would be training for Everest thinking, what if it's just so far out of my realm of capability, this is on another level. But I felt like, you know what, I was told that all the way along and it hasn't been true yet. So decided to go for the big one. 
yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's such a great response. And I'm sure people can get so much out of that and apply that mm. across every aspect of life. So yeah, that's awesome. But yeah, that's it. And I, I thank you so much for coming on. You're that's a all right. inspiration, not just for females, but you know, for me and myself, I draw inspiration from you and I'm, I've read your book now and I'm going to put it on the shelf and I can't wait for my daughter to get old enough and her be able to read it. But yeah. I'm sure by the time that happens, you might have a couple more, maybe movies. True, knows true. What you've been to so, <laughs> yeah. yeah Odds are? Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> it's an absolute pleasure to have you on and uh, thank you so much for sharing your journey up until this point. That's right. Thank you and uh, enjoyed chatting.